again return to 1 Kings and a new chapter, chapter 17, a man for the times, that is, a man whom God raised up as a prophet at just the right time. Again, the words of that first verse, and Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the sojourners of Gilead, said unto Ahab, as Jehovah the God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Last week we began, or not last week, but the week before, we began, as we began this series, with an assessment of the times in which Elijah proclaimed the word of God. The way we introduced all of that was by asking a question. Putting it in contemporary terms, what does the Christian do? Or what does the Christian church do when the anti-Christian culture surrounding the Christians, surrounding the church, attacks the church and the Christian, or invades, actually invades, the church or the Christian life. Basically, there are three ways to react. One is by way of synthesis, by way of combining two world views, an unhealthy and an unwise eclecticism. Sadly, this is too common, and it's a rather popular uh, approach, and it's wrong-headed. Secondly, there's the matter of separating or compartmentalizing one's life. There's the life of devotion, There's the life of Christian experience, which is typically very private, and even if it includes the church, more is attached to the private devotion than to the church. But then beyond all of that, the person looks like, talks like, and lives like the world and identifies with the world. And then there's a third approach which I think is the right approach. And we might call that the approach of struggle or the approach of standing, that is standing against um, and seeing that the Christian life and the church life is a contradiction to all that is going on in the world. And the two worlds or the two world systems are on a collision course and are opposed to one another. Sadly, this is the least common approach, but it's the most correct approach. A.W. Pink puts it this way when he says, Elijah appeared on the stage of public action during one of the darkest hours of Israel's Sad history. 
And he appeared to contradict. He appeared as on a collision course and opposed to what was taking place in the Israel of his day. So there's an assessment of how we evaluate the times in which we live. And we've already said, by way of this citation from Pink, that we're entering a, 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 a period in our study of the worst of times. It was a time of enormous religious and practical perversion. 17.1, that is this verse, is a continuation really of what we saw in the last chapter from the first sermon. Now, it was a time in Israel's history, under, especially under Omri, uh, the predecessor to Ahab, of financial or fiscal momentum. Uh, they now, Israel now had a port on the coast on the, uh, the, uh, with Sidon, of Tyre and Sidon fame, um, and were able to trade and to move goods back and forth. It was a time of political advantage, sadly, though, because of a marriage of convenience with, um, uh, with Ahab marrying uh, Jezebel, the daughter of the king of the Phoenicians. Again, it was politically advantageous, but it brought them into contact with the god of the Phoenicians, was the god of the Canaanites as well, Baal. And we move from beginning in Jeroboam's time, compromise to full-blown idolatry under this particular period of time. And so sadly, but most to the point, it was a time of spiritual perversion. It was the worst possible time to be alive. Baal was not only, uh, uh, Baal was, was actually replacing the God of Israel. Pink goes on to say, it is truly saddening to contemplate the awful conditions which then prevailed. Every light had been extinguished. Every voice of divine testimony was hushed. Spiritual death was spread over everything, and it looked as though Satan had obtained, had obtained mastery of the situation. And so, what does God do? God raises up a man for the times to do the work of the time. And so he gives to his people, a prophet. When writer has said, suddenly, with great impetuosity, the mighty figure of Elijah the prophet bursts upon the scene like lightning on the midnight. Now, there are three things about Elijah that I want us to see if we have time to do all of it this afternoon. First of all, notice Elijah and his person, that is, who he was, what, 
what can we learn about him just from this introduction? When I was um, young, not just young, but very young child, I can remember sitting in front of our 21-inch black and white television. Yes, I'm that old. And um, on Saturday mornings and watching The Lone Ranger. And I remember that there was a signature line in virtually every episode. As he saves the day, whatever that was and whatever that meant, the last line in the film or in the, in the, in the TV program typically was some townsperson saying, who was that masked man? Some of you might remember that. Who was that masked man? He's the Lone Ranger. Well, you might say something like that about Elijah because we know almost nothing about him. I don't think he wore a mask, but who was Elijah? What we do know about Elijah is significant, however, and it comes from this first verse. Notice a number of things. First of all, he was unheralded. He is unintroduced. <laughs> He's not really introduced. He just, he just appears. Unannounced. No curriculum vitae for uh, this prophet. He appears abruptly, intrusively, out of obscurity. A number of things are just not included, which, would, which are commonly found in other places where a prophet or a king or someone is introduced. He has no parentage. Well, he did, but we don't know who they were. And that's one of the things that the Old Testament often introduces. Prophets are often introduced differently. Jonah was when we studied that book not too long ago. He has no postal code. By that we mean we have absolutely no idea where Tishbe is. The place is unknown. And then he lives in or he comes not only from a town and we have absolutely no idea where it is on the map, except in general, except in a general sense. And he comes from an insignificant place. He comes from Gilead. Literally, a resident alien. Doesn't appear that he's from a major tribe. Perhaps his parents had fled to this rural place for safety because of idolatry. And they wanted to take their family to a safer place spiritually. It's not mentioned that he's from a major tribe at all. Everything about him is insignificant. He has no patronage. There's no king or anyone of importance that endorses or supports him. He just appears unheralded, not introduced, unknown, and completely unadorned. There's 
no description of him here. There is later a description of him, but not here. But not here. He's somewhat like Melchizedek. Remember king of Salem. Who appears in Genesis and is mentioned in the book of Hebrews. Without father, without mother, without descent. Elijah is like that. And we know no more about him. And Ahab may well have not known any more about him either. B.H. Carroll, the Baptist of the 19th century, wrote, He emerges from total obscurity to stand as the mouthpiece of Jehovah and then to be swallowed up into that obscurity for three and a half years more. He was unheralded, unidentified. He was uninvited. You know, know, when I go to your home, I usually go with an invitation. There's, you know, and we're friends. But he's uninvited. He just appears in Ahab's court without permission, which wouldn't have been done in the day um, before a king. He was uninhibited. (laughs) He just said what was on his mind, which was the word of the Lord. He was unafraid, unfazed by standing in front of this august personage. He was unvarnished. By that I mean his message was not polite, was not polished, it was not inviting. It's just there's not going to be any rain until I speak again. He's undeterred, unimpressed by the person, and in a very good way, he's unfiltered. He says what needs to be said. So here is a man who has a profound word to speak, but he is extremely uncomplicated. He delivered his message, and then he turned around, and he walked out the door. No casual conversation. That's not to suggest that there's anything wrong with casual conversation. It has a place. And we enjoy one another's company, but there's, this man is on a mission. He's on an errand. He has something to do. And so idle chit-chat in this particular context just will not do It's too serious. He cannot be distracted. One writer puts it this way. He had had learned to fear man so little because he feared God so much. And I think that's good. I think that's significant. That's truly important. He had learned to fear God or to fear man Little, because he feared God so much. And maybe we need to find a way to recapture the fear of God, reverence for the truly holy one. Elijah certainly knew something of that. And so we see, first of all, Elijah and his person. 
Secondly, notice Elijah and his religion. By that I mean his faith. In verse 1, we're told a number of things about what Elijah believed. Elijah was a confessing man. He was a, a confessing believer. He confessed a number of things about the one true God that were in contrast to what Ahab believed. So notice several things. First of all, he confessed the living God. You'll notice that right here in the verse. As Jehovah, the God of Israel, liveth, lives, present tense. Literally, his name, or literally what Elijah says here is, and the word order is not the word order we would have in English, but it's the word order of Hebrew. My God, Jehovah, is. It's a kind of emphasis there that may be lost in our English translations. Now, that's his name. Now, names have significance. They have significance uh, they're significant for us as well. And as parents, those of us that uh, are parents, we, we gave names to our children. And we give names for a number of different reasons. Um, sometimes it's a family name. And uh, we've done that in, in, uh, in my own family. Sometimes um, parents give names for no other reason than that they just like the name. And there's no rhyme or reason. If you ask them why, they say, I like the name. And that's perfectly fine. And some parents um, will attach names that have something to do with, with the legacy or the heritage of, um, of that family. It, we did that with a Scandinavian background. My children all have noticeable Scandinavian names. Other times, parents will, will name a child after someone that was a very good friend or someone that they esteemed or respected in a great way. But in the in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, often parents, godly parents, would give names to their children in hope. That is, in terms of the possibility of what they would like them to grow up to be. And perhaps that's the case here. You don't know for certain, but the name is suggestive of the possibility that Elijah's parents were believers and possibly had moved to a more rural area for religious reasons or spiritual reasons. We've already mentioned that. But that's often the case in Bible times, especially in, in Jewish homes, whether the family was a, were, were devoted, or was devoted, and were godly people. 
in any event, he has a name which is significant and his very name confesses the one true, the living God, as opposed to a dead idol, which is the second thing. Not only does his name um, confess, not only does he confess the living God, and one uh, that is opposed to a dead idol, but he also confesses that God is what we might call the lecturing God. God speaks, and he speaks through his servants. Now, eventually we'll see that God spoke to Elijah, and we might imagine that that's what's taking place in this first verse as well, that God has spoken to him and told him that it will not rain for three years. But it's interesting that God had already said that. In Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verses 16 and 17, we read these verses as God instructs his people in Deuteronomy. Take heed to yourselves, lest your heart be deceived, and ye turned aside and serve other gods and worship them. Now again, remember, that's the context here. 1 Kings chapters 16 and 17. And the anger of Jehovah be kindled against you. Continuing reading in Deuteronomy. And the anger of Jehovah be kindled against you. And he shut up the heavens. So that there shall be no rain. And the land shall not yield its fruit. And ye perish quickly from off the good land. Which Jehovah giveth you. Point to be made here is that Elijah knew his Bible. Elijah knew the book of Deuteronomy, and he's not citing in particular a fresh revelation, but he's actually citing what God has already said. And there's another reference in Deuteronomy chapter 28, which sounds similar. Here is the challenging God, inflicting covenant curses. Again, reflecting Deuteronomy. Here is the official position. Here Jonah represents the Lord himself. I am your servant as the Lord lives. And so he he confesses the living God, the lecturing God, And also the loving God. He speaks of God as the God of Israel. Israel's God. Covenant Lord. Faithful. Loyal. To his people. And so he confesses the Lord as the living God the lecturing God, the loving God, and also the local God. He is standing there. Notice what he says, before whom I stand. He said unto Abraham, uh, Ahab, 
as Jehovah, the God of Israel, liveth before whom I stand. God is present through Elijah. There is this face-to-face relationship with the Lord God of Israel. He's present, he's attendant, he's imminent. And Elijah stands before him. Now this will come later in our study of, the, of, of Elijah. But Elijah confesses the Lord as the listening God. James chapter 5, he prayed. And God listened to him. And then finally, he's what we might call the lively God. He draws attention to his lordship. He's the God who is active. He's the God who is sovereign. He's the God who is dominant. He withholds rain. And he sends rain. Now, among other things, the passage tells us that God and God alone is the Lord of the weather. There were two rains in Israel. There are to this day as well. Rain doesn't come like it does here all the time. But it comes at two particular seasons in the year. They're called the former rains and the latter rain. Former rains come in late April or May. And the other, excuse me, one one comes in uh, October to early January. And the other late April to May. One is light. Hence the reference to do. And the other is heavy. Agriculture was dependent upon those rains. If those rains didn't come, there would be a drought. So Elijah is telling Ahab that the God of weather systems is going to withhold Rain until I speak again. Now remember who Baal was. And Baal was Ahab's God. Baal was the God of weather and of fertility. And the two are connected. The two are related, at least in an agricultural sense. God was challenging Baal's prowess. God was challenging Baal's ability to bring the former and the latter reigns. The contest was, as someone has said, meteorological. And God was in charge. One writer has said, the power and control of the living God seen in contrast with the ineffectiveness of Baal, the Canaanite God 
of rain. In other words, that's the theme of the passage. Or as Matthew Henry wrote, the powers of nature are limited, but not the powers of the God of nature. Now there's a third point, but my time has run out. And that is drawing a connection between or a comparison between Elijah and John the Baptist. And that's another sermon probably all by itself, so I have to wait on that one. But there's an interesting connection between the two and as well a relationship between Elijah and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's next, but not today. A couple of thoughts um, before we're finished. We're going to notice and we begin to notice here, but we're going to notice the following. Godless times call for godly men and godly women. Godly men as those who minister the word, but godly men and women in the churches as well. God raised up just the man for the moment. Now that doesn't make any of us an Elijah. We don't receive special revelation um, and we may or may not have the effectiveness of an Elijah, but we can become Elijah-like. Matthew Henry wrote, Never was Israel, Israel so blessed with a good prophet as when it was so plagued with a bad king. This is the right time for God's people to contend with the idolatrous culture in which they find themselves. Roger Ellsworth wrote, Elijah was indeed a unique man, a man prepared by God for that specific hour. We can never be all that he was, but we can be some of what he was. May God help us to have something of his spirit. What could God do with Christians who had just a small measure of the qualities Elijah possessed. And so the thought in, uh, encased in this particular verse is not concession, but confrontation. That's Elijah's contribution to us. Faith is not believing anything we choose to believe so strongly that we activate latent powers and cause it to come to pass. Nor is it legitimate and right to pray what we want and have it because we believe it regardless of whether it's based on the word of God or not. What Elijah said was based upon what had been said Previously, what God himself had said. Here is a frontal assault on the God of weather by the God 
of all things. Someone has written, Satan's throne has been installed in Samaria. But at the triumph of evil, God will be there ready for this man. And then the writer said, and it's Dale Ralph Davis, by the way, citing someone else. Doesn't it put iron in your bones and steel in your guts to see that whatever threat arises with the Lord, the defense is always ready. Everyone knew that Baal was in charge of rainfall. and God would never let such a thing happen. Let us pray.